Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. One day, my introduction would be different than that, but it's not because it's still special and because I'm not that original. Speaking of which... Oh, have- we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> What do you know, Andrew Page? Oh, just the originality. It's I, 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 I appreciate the disclaimer. Halfway through the intro, I get interrupted with a sledge. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I, of course, am Scott Phillips. He, as he's already introduced himself, is Andrew Ram Page Esquire, as I'm forced to call him now. The uh, contractually obliged, correct. The yeah. entrepreneur and business builder, the mover and shaker, the man who started and still runs strawman.com because uh, he's a control freak and his team of minions couldn't do anything without him. I just have one question, Andrew. What is it? Oh, if you ask, I don't know. What, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. We're an online investment club, oh, although right. I do appreciate uh, you You have a way of making it sound a lot more impressive than what it is. <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll take I'll take those labels that you want to apply. I'm, yeah, I'm, thank you. Uh, credit where it's due, mate. Credit where it's due. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know about that, but it, it sounds nice. I appreciate What's it. What's the point of building an empire if you're not called an emperor? That's all I'm saying. Well, yeah, okay. You just got to have the right definition of empire to begin with, <laughs> I suppose. But yeah. <laughs> oh, well, look. Strawman.com, you should check out. You should also check out fool.com.au. They are the business that Andrew runs, the business I work for, and the two very best investment-related websites, companies, operations in let's go the, universe. the universe. Correct. I was yeah. going to say world. I was going to say country. I was going to go galaxy universe. Probably even maybe, maybe the multiverse. All the universe. Correct. Well, <laughs> there's parallel. If there if there are parallel universes, does that mean there are parallel multiverses? <laughs> Oh, that's too deep for this Isn't stage it? of the morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I love turtles all the way down, right? <laughs> exactly, that's right. I've, I've used turtles all the way down so many times. I love that. I love that. I love expression. it too. I use it a lot, mates. Up, we've got a squillion different, fantastic questions from our listeners in the mailbag. So rather than me banging on any further, should we just get into it? Let's do a power round. I think it's going to be impossible for us, oh, but yeah. we'll we'll keep it short. <laughs> no, we won't. Uh, we, no. we will intend to. An intention is important. Intentions is important. Yep. You can't yep. you can't question our intentions. You can absolutely question our execution. Uh, g'day again, lads, says our questioner, Brent. He says, I just want to say I'm adoring the work you're doing. Thank you, mate. Please keep it up. I believe I speak for many in saying your educational and non-personal advice is helping immensely, especially for the unsophisticated investor such as myself who is just finding their way and in need of guidance. Thank you, mate. It's my second time writing to the podcast, the podcast device, says Brent. I work like a Trojan during 2022 and have binge listened to about six months of episodes over my recent holiday. I have a few large-ish questions and a general comment, if I may. I'm going to start with a general comment. Brent, if you've got nothing better on your holidays to do than listen to us talk, you really need a better travel agent. But we appreciate it. Uh, his first question, Scott, oh dear, you recently featured something I flicked you on Instagram around the chest depository interests. For those who uh, don't remember, that's the basically an Australian version or Australian way to access US listed shares on the ASX. You both did a great job addressing the subject, he says. There was an interesting thought that came to me afterwards. He says, by the way, I'm an idiot with this stuff. Just writing this question melted my brain. But I found interest in it and perhaps others might too. Now, I'm not going to go through all the detail, Brent, because he gives us some details around pricing on the NASDAQ and pricing on the ASX, and they're a bit different. And he said, you know, at one point, they were 3% cheaper. At one point, they were 4% more expensive. He says, that's a dislocation, 4.3% dislocation in pricing between the two markets in two weeks. So a question, are CDIs linked to the parent share in any particular way between the markets on which they're listed? 
or do they trade independently of each other? If they do trade independently, is this exploitable? Hmm. Andrew. I, I actually don't know. My my mind's right. I my my instinct here is just that that it the the very act of it being exploitable and it probably is to some degree is what actually keeps them aligned. That's probably true. Although it does remind me of the economist joke of two economists walk past a twenty dollar note, neither of them picks it up, and one says the other well, if it was really there, someone would have picked it up by now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um yeah, you're right. Love it. it. Look, it's it, it, it probably is moderately exploitable, Brent. There is a story around somewhere, I think it's Goldman Sachs, apparently got its computer in the basement that just ticks over and makes them a couple of million dollars a year, uh, just exploiting what, and no one knows what the secret formula is. It's probably an apocryphal story. The idea is, you know, if it was any bigger, they'd already be exploiting it. Someone would be doing it. If I buy a CDI here, yeah. I should know this, but I've drawn a blank. I, I can only sell it here. I can't sell that same instrument on the other I market. I have a feeling you can convert. I think CDI technically like, there's yeah. a cause. I don't think anyone ever does it. Right, but exactly. I think, yeah. If, if, if the, if the, to your point, mate, if, if the gap was big enough, someone would be doing it and they do it in very large amounts of money to make it worthwhile. Yeah. Um, Brent, no, no realistically, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, you could probably buy both and sell one and buy the other and sell one and buy the other and eventually you might generate some money. But uh, the other thing, by the way, is the prices are often different because of things like currency movements. So the CDI will trade so, so there was a couple things. So uh, really quickly, because we said we were quick. Let's say the market closes at four o'clock in New York. That's the closing price of a dollar a share. They then have after hours trading, which is bizarre to me. Like it's after hours because the market's not really open, but it's open because you can trade them, which means it's not really after hours. It's actually just the market hours. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so it trades after hours. So you see the closing price of a dollar. The shares might go to a dollar two uh, during the during after hours. So then when they trade on the ASX in the morning, they should reflect that because that's the most recent price, even though the price you'll see on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange is the dollar. So that's the first yeah. thing. Second thing is currencies move during that period of time as well. So you'll see mm. currencies impact. So dollar two US, but then maybe the currencies drop by a couple of percents now to dollar five you know, US. All of a yeah. sudden, those things, those things impact the price. So look, it's a bit like EFT, ETFs. ETFs. Um, they, they just need to move around a little bit, but generally speaking, they're going to be close enough. It's not exploitable by people without capital. It Maybe if you had a supercomputer and super cheap brokerage and uh, around-the-clock trading desk, but no, it, it, not, not, not in any reasonable and, and serious way. Yeah, and you've got to factor in fees associated with it. So even if the raw numbers look as exactly, though it's possible yeah. after fees and taxes, does it, how does it work out? That's all right, having to convert the shares and buy them back and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I do like the thought though. I just, there are, there are opportunities that are out there, but again, it is the very existence of them and the fact that there will be someone willing to exploit it and has the capacity to exploit it. The the very act of exploiting it will keep them more or less in line. Markets are pretty efficient like that. And it's, it's sort of, I get, I get, I get where Brent's coming from because it is, it's sort of an interesting kind of idea, but in terms of your day to day and getting on with investing, it's just, nah, there's, there's there's far better things to focus on. Basically. And look, yeah, again, if it was possible, someone would be doing with a supercomputer and they have capital and resources and all that kind of stuff. It's not, I I generally, you know, when you're investing really quick tangent, not not related though, when you're investing, you want to play a game you can reasonably win at and not take on people or ideas that someone else is going to be better at, right? There's the idea of, mm. you know, you don't need, you don't need to, I don't need to beat Goldman Sachs at their own game. That would be stupid of me to try because they've got people and money and computers and speed and everything else they've got. So if I try and play their game, that's madness, right? If I <laughs> put it this way, if I, want to, if I want to win a game of football, I should play against my 10 year old, not yep. against a first grade rugby league player, right? Yeah. So, so just, and I'm not saying that I need, you know, to take advantage of little kids, but, um, you know, just, just, 
I invest over the long term, try to find great businesses because I think there's opportunities there. I don't have to beat someone else to the punch or hope that something's going to trade at a certain price by midnight tonight or two o'clock tomorrow morning. It's just I'm just doing the thing I think I can do well. I think it creates value rather than trying to play harder games against people who've frankly come with a million advantages that I don't, I don't have. I've said it before that the the really the only lasting advantage to the small individual investor is is the is the ability to operate over longer time frames. Yep. Institutional money doesn't have that luxury for a whole bunch of uh, incentives and reasons, and they they just don't. They, that's that's the edge you've you've got. 100%. And so, to your point, that's that's the that's the one that you you should exploit. Yeah, correct. Um, second question. <laughs> Love the way he's phrased this. Hypothetical situation. I'm out on a Friday night, and I've just drunk 28 Treasury shares worth of Penfolds wine. When someone random I meet gives me a stock tip for a company I've never heard of. Uh, by the way, I should disguise I own Treasury shares. The next morning, armed with a strong coffee, a ticket code, and no other information. Where do I start when it comes to researching said lead from scratch? I'm yeah. not convinced I'm doing a good job finding relevant information on the businesses I'm considering and seem to struggle mm. even more to put together a realistically clear picture of these businesses. Do you mm. have a system or routine you follow when investigating a new company? Where do you find all your information and then how do you piece it all together? Summarizing this, how do you suggest someone conduct thorough research and due diligence on a prospective company? Now, Ray, I'm going to throw this, this one question. to you because you're the small cap investor. I, I, I got to say, I don't do as much small cap investing. So, Brent, one of the benefits of investing generally is it's a, it's cumulative. The longer you do it, yep. the more you learn. Um, and so it's it's just it's every every day is a little bit easier than the last than yesterday because if you're looking at Coles, but you know Woolies, that's probably easier. If you're if you're yep. looking at a at Coca Cola Amateur when they used to be listed on the ASX or Bigger, better, better example. Uh, if you know Coles and Woolies, you at least know the market they're operating in. If yep. you know Biggie, you probably can look at Fonterra. You know, these things, they're cumulative, which is nice. I will say yep. one quick thing before I throw it to you, Andrew, on, on companies. I would actually start one step before that, Brent. I would start with understanding business models um, because yes. that is where you're going to be able to put what you learn about the business into some sort of framework. You can know everything about Maya, which we'll talk about on Friday, everything about AMP, uh, but if you don't know what's happening, you know how, how do fund managers work? How what what what's a what's a retail business model look like in terms of say unit economics, for example, or gross profit, or you know uh, sales per square foot? Those kind of ideas matter a lot. So there is generic business models, and generally when I think about business models, I'm actually it's almost not exactly, but it's almost code for me for um, competitive advantage, sources of competitive mm. advantage. Mm. Why will this business? You know, how could a business be bigger or better than its competitors? But also then mm. for the business itself, what is specific about retail or something else? So start with that. Uh, learn that stuff. There's heaps of great books out there. Um, I'm going to, again, plug Warren Buffett's letters because just, it's just a, it's an MBA. Uh, read the letters of Warren Buffett. There's art there. You can do them off the website. You can grab a book that has them all summarized. Uh, really, really great. Uh, uh, Good to Great, another fantastic business book, business models. Um, don't forget deep into it, but that sort of stuff will give you a really good start. Once you've done that mm. ramp, how do you start doing research? I, I, you, you hear someone say, hey, got this really cool new small cap I've heard of, Andrew. It's called Page and Phillips Incorporated. And you're like, yep. oh, interesting. Okay, well, I don't know anything about it. What, what does it do? How does it make its money? How do you start looking into this business? I, I, oh, so much to say. The, yep. the the first point, I just <laughs> want to touch on what you said about business models because I underline that. it's what's What's interesting is that if you want to speak broadly, there's only like, I don't know, 
eight business models in the world. Yeah. At a, at a high enough yeah, yeah. level, like you've got retail, for example, you've got manufacturing kind of business. There are, and and within each sort of category, there are certain core insights that you that you can apply to any business that operates in. Like here mm. are the things that, mm. that that tend to matter. Here are the dynamics that that are at play, and they are very b- broadly applicable. So you can actually know a lot about IT services companies, a few of them on the ASX. It actually turns out that a lot of those insights and knowledge will translate very well to mining services and engineering services oh, companies because right. they're the same business model. They operate in different sectors, mm. but they're people businesses that deliver a service in, ex- in exchange for an hour of someone's time. I mean, like, mm. in, in, and you will find that there are these sort of generalizations that, that just hold true. So it, it, is, it is cumulative, and, but don't, what will put people off is just like, oh my gosh, I have to become a master in all this. Like, well, no, start off small and expand the circle, but you'll be surprised at how much can sort of translate uh, in, into what seem like different domains. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the first nice, point. Man. Thank you. The second point is when everyone gives you a stock tip, if what they're talking about is the price of the shares and how they're going to go up, that's the first thing, just run a mile, right? Because it's just like, that, that is just pure lottery ticket kind of <laughs> stuff. I mean, obvious, ob- that seems, it, that's implicit. If anyone's going to give you a stock idea, well, it's like, obviously you think it's going to be cheap. I don't want to, you don't want, I don't want you to tell me that the share price is going up. I want you to tell me why you think the share price is going up. And I want you to frame that in the context of what you think the business is capable of doing. And you're only going to know that if you actually know what the business does and what it's about. And again, we're back, you go back all the way to first principles. Mm-hmm. So I, I start off really simply. If I've not heard of a company before, Google it. Go to the website and click about us. Huh, okay. They're that kind of, they're that kind of business, right? I mean, it sounds basic, but, but start, off, start off broad. I'll, uh, what I won't do is often sometimes, well, you, you can Google company names and you get a lot of sort of free broker reports and stuff as well. They're worth reading at a point, but a lot of these, you'd be surprised at how many of these coverages are paid for. <laughs> so you've got to be a little bit skeptical of that as well. Read it, um, read it for the information, not the analysis or the conclusion. Yes, absolutely. And, and bear in mind that they might be angling for some kind of institutional uh, <laughs> arrangement or whatever. Yeah. So just, just, just be mindful of that. But you know where, I mean, so few people f- do this. Everyone feels as though you need a very expensive bit of software mm. or something to do all this stuff. Go to the ASX.com. It's free. Go to the announcements and just look up the latest annual report. Now, it's a huge document, but you don't have to read the notes to the financial statement, the auditor report. You know, this, read read the, the the first part of it, which is just going to tell you, hey, this is the principal activities of the group. There'll be some commentary from the chairman and that. And, and again, you'll, you'll, you'll find that this is actually going to throw up a lot more questions than answers, but you're getting a lay of the land here at this point. Don't just jump straight to the PE. Yeah, Don't right. just <laughs> jump straight to what the, the profit was or the margin was. It just, it, 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 all of that information is vital, but without any context, it's absolutely, absolutely meaning, meaningless. So, yeah, uh, th- that's exactly how I start. You'll find that more, pretty much every company these days produces lovely slide decks and presentations, which will give you yeah. the overview of what they do, the addressable market, their business strategy and the rest, and just read. And just yeah. read. And Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett talk about this all the time. They just sit on their bums and they read. Like Munger says these kids think that he's just a book with two <laughs> legs sticking out the bottom of yeah. it. No fancy computers. And it's going to take a little bit of time. Grab out a pen and paper or an, an iPad or whatever you want. Just take some notes as you go. The, up, the, the, the thing that I will say is that quite often, well, I'll, I'll speak in my experience because I'm, I'm not that bright. But quite often you sort of, you go partway down the rabbit hole and you think, 
I just don't get it. Yeah. And that's okay. That's mm-hmm. okay because there's 2,000 companies on the exchange and a lot of them operate in industries I've got no familiarity with. 100%. There's esoteric things. I just, you know, even if I get the business and the business model, I've just got no no way of understanding what's going on in the industry and where that's likely to head. That, that, there, is, there is a great, great, great advantage in having the humility to put things in the too hard basket. Mm. But you just persist. Okay, that was an interesting idea. It sounded good at the time when I had, when I drank my second case of Treasury Wine Estate wine last night. <laughs> I just can't make it work. Because my, my another favorite saying of mine, it's on my bio on Strawman. In fact, is that hope is not an investment strategy. You need you need to have some rational rationalization sort of around that. But you know, you will come across a business that. Maybe it operates in an industry that you've worked in, or maybe you've got some familiarity, or maybe it's just really straightforward and you yep. get it, yep. you know? And it's like that, that is something then to really continue to press in and just keep reading, keep asking questions. Go, to, you, you can attend the, you can attend so many of the meetings these days because the companies will put out the Zoom link. You know, our, our quarter two results briefing is out. You know, you might even be able to get to ask a question. Um, and don't be afraid of asking dumb questions. People are too, people are too nervous about that. Oh, I, you know, I feel like it's a stupid question to ask. No, not at all. You get, you get the right, especially if you're a shareholder, you get the right to ask those questions and just keep going. And, and then you will find at a point you build up some conviction. And, and that is a really precious, precious thing. And, and once you've got conviction, then I'm sorry, this is a long answer, but, but I think you've, you've got to also put a bit of time into saying, what I don't know, what I'm unsure about, what I consider risks, and just have those on your radar. So if they do come along, you're not at least taken by surprise. And maybe you've thought through what the approach to to that bit of news might be, whether it breaks the thesis entirely or requires a new valuation or something like that. Sorry, mate, long answer, but in short, start out very broad. Yep. Very broad, drill in and bail at any point that you don't don't feel as though you've got a good good hold of it. Remember too, you're going to, build that circle of competence to use Buffett's phrase slowly. So yep. it's okay. Early on, most things won't make sense. Uh, if they, in fact, if you think they make sense, you don't, you don't understand. It's, what's the line about, you know, if you think you understand something, you really, you don't really understand it. That's almost the point. It's like, you know, when you yes. go, oh no, I've got it. Now. It's like, no, you've been doing it for three months. You really haven't got it. it, it it's literally impossible. Um, so, you know, know that it'll build. Don't get frustrated by it. Just see it as a learning experience. You are learning kindergarten maths. Right, and then you get yeah. to year one math and year two math. It won't take you a year each, but you know it's you need to build yeah. these things, uh, you know, on top of each other. Mate, um, yep. this is a, another great question. The Brent's third. I would like to develop daily habits that will help me become the best investor I can. I've read all the books you recommended when I first wrote in, and now as I have a couple of hours a day to devote to my investing passion, I would appreciate any recommendations from you or from your listeners now i love the fact you're asking about listeners too by the way so if you have ideas for brent hit us up but in the meantime and i'll give it a red hot go and then you can add to your thoughts i don't have an easy answer for this question i've got to say mate it's one of those things you should obviously be able to answer but i don't uh if you had a couple of hours a day what do you spend time doing to to build your investing competence yeah i actually think books are are the best yeah virtually free education that they're i mean We've done an episode before on reading lists. The Fool has some good lists on on your site. So rather than just rattling, and there'll be names that I think a lot of people are familiar with, but read them. I've gone back to many of them and reread them or at least reread parts of them. I think that is really, I need to, I keep promising myself to do that more often because I read books 10 years Mm -hmm. ago and then it's, it's, well, partly you would have forgotten a bunch of stuff, but it's also now with 10 years extra experience under the belt, 
I think I would draw different lessons that weren't apparent at the time. You, you, you can get a different experience in, in going back to some of these classics because mm. even if these books were written in the 80s or whenever, it's like these, the big principles, the big ideas are evergreen. And it's not just a question of sort of having read it, but owned it and absorbed, absorbed it, I suppose, as well. Um, so I, 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 think, I think it's always just, I mean, I confess to you before this episode, I haven't read a book in a long mm -hmm. time. I've just been distracted with things. So I've, my reading list is insanely wrong. But I, I just think, you know, the people who are, who are well-read tend to be a lot better informed. It sounds like an obvious statement when you say it out loud. So I, I'd say that. But, don't, but, but, but on those evergreen kind of things, it's worth, worth doing. I mean, you, you'll find that a bishop still reads the Bible all the time. He's probably read it a gazillion times, right? But it's a sort of like you, you, you can shave perfectly one day, the next day you've got to do it again. There's, there's something to be said of mm -hmm. like really sort of hammering some of these things home. Other than that, I, I think you'll just stay on top of what your companies are saying, read some, some parts of the financial journal, uh, <laughs> financial media. Um, uh, yeah. And I think a lot of the time too, it, it's just remembering that most of investing is doing nothing. So, totally. the, you know, it, you, it's, I, mean, I, I applaud the initiative and the enthusiasm. Um, but anyone else who's listening going, God, is that what I need to do? Like, you don't need, I mean, you'd be fantastic if you've got that much interest in it, but, but it is cumulative, as you said before, and it's just more or less trying to keep your finger on the pulse. If investing is a full-time job, you're doing it wrong. I, yeah, I, totally. I would say. I think that's absolutely, particularly if you're doing your own account. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I should be able to just drop, uh, yeah. drop off the face of the earth for a month. And not oh, have to worry about my I, portfolio. I go away right? for three weeks at a time in winter and I don't sell my portfolio ever. People say, like, what if something happens? I'm like, I don't know. Just it'll happen. Like, yeah. but what if something it'll happen? Well, it'll happen whether you're there or Correct, not. Correct, exactly. Like to think that you would have happened you're, to see something before everyone else and reacted. You, and, yeah. Yeah. The illusion of control is something you need to get over because, you know, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 when it does happen, you're like, oh, bugger, the share price has fallen. That happens with your yep. year or when you find out in two weeks, I'm the share price fall, the share price has fallen. Yep. Very rare you're going to go, share price has fallen. Now I get a chance to get out without losing money. Uh, luckily, I was here a week ago rather than today because that, that made all the difference. By the way, shares can go up over that point, period of time too, right? So just not yep. just one direction. Um, uh, yes, I can't add to that, mate, other than to say I, I've divided my reading and thinking up into a few things. Read about great investors. Uh, don't read books about investing strategies per se. Uh, it's not very useful. Read about great investors. Buffett's top of my list, Phil Fisher, uh, Peter Lynch. Uh, Howard, Marks. Howard Marks. Howard uh, Marks. Read, read their stuff about read them Dalio. and from them. Uh, I'm, not big, I'm not a big fan of Dalio, actually, from a from a stock pick perspective. I don't, I don't find his insights super useful personally. Smart guy. I'm not sure what I'd do with them. I love his – I love – uh, it's a different – Point yep. for a different time, but he, he like the the way that he runs Bridgewater, the the um, that's fascinating. It, it it's all about um anyone being able, in fact, encouraged to challenge every idea, which yeah. is, I mean, I, the business I own is called Strongman. I'm just so big onto that the idea of that. just constantly challenging and testing your ideas, and that he's I love his framework on that, and I love he's got some great stuff on YouTube in terms of the economic yeah, cycle and yes. stuff, which really just lovely. How, how the economic way. machine works? Is that his? Yes, yeah. yeah. Google yeah. Ray Dalio, D A L I O, how the economic machine works, and he's yeah. got one more recently too on on sort of debt super cycles and stuff. It's 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 it, it, it's not that I'm going to say I'm just I'm all in on on his philosophy, but he's got some really interesting ideas. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, I just I, I, so I do the second category is is businesses, 
And be a little bit careful here. Um, a lot of business books are, uh, is it hagiographies? Hagiographies? Hagiographies. Basically, business books yeah. written to big up the person it's about, right? So look how smart Warren Buffett is. Look how smart Elon Musk is. Look how smart Steve Jobs was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're, yeah. they're interesting in, in, in and of themselves, but none of us are those people. So it's kind of a bit of a, it's, it's you know, I've been known to call it business business porn, frankly, because it's kind of like mm. it's like you know we get excited about those things, knowing we can't possibly repeat them anyway. So it's just it's just you know, but mm. but 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 for all of that, um, the way great businesses run, if you start to triangulate some of that stuff, you really can learn quite a lot. Um, yeah. So Shoe Dog by Phil Knight is a spectacularly good book. Um, yep. Snowball about Warren Buffett is great. Yes, correct. Thank Nike. you. Uh, uh, good to Great by Jim Collins is is untouchable. Oh, yeah. um, some great so read about businesses is the the other thing I would I would suggest. Um, so they're they're probably the two two things I'd look at in terms of business books. Just separate them out into you know investors, a bit of investing, but you know investors generally. Um, anything great investors have written are always good, uh, and then the businesses themselves. Just try and get the right balance of not just you know how I can be the next Elon Musk or how I can be the next Warren Buffett or whoever. Again, they're great books. Just remember that you're not them. So. Learn from them. Don't try and be them. I suppose is the is the key challenge there. Yeah, and wh- where I get a little bit more skeptical of of a lot of these glowing sort of yeah. biographies is that what you've had some very hardworking, intelligent people who just had some incredible success, <laughs> yeah, and, and right. they deserve the credit that they get for yep. that. But I think what and there's been a lot of sort of studies that show how significant um, the role of luck is oh, in this. So there is a huge. I mean, yeah. Elon Musk could have been born ten years later yep. or ten years earlier. We never would have heard of him, right? Yep. Um, it, it, there, there is there is a massive element for business at right place, right time. It was probably <laughs> if it wasn't, 100%. do you know what I mean? Yep. It, 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 um, if it wasn't Bill Gates, it would have been someone else. Apple, right? Apple goes broke if if Wi-Fi and four G, three G takes another yes. five years to to come about. Exactly, it right? just doesn't survive it, long enough because Apple's losing money. The iPhone or the iPod, effectively. But you know, if that if that technology doesn't exist, now maybe Jobs would have found something else to do with it. But I doubt it because there was no there was no other technology. I mean, he, he again yes. made some of it or he, he inspired some of the changes. So again, he's not exactly you know useless. But Jobs yeah. five five years delayed, the business goes broke. Elon Musk, I've said a million times, he said mm. himself, if there had been a recession in the early days of Tesla's life, the business goes bust. Yeah. We we have no Tesla today. Now Musk is the richest man in the world. He deserves a lot of his success because he's worked bloody hard. But without that luck, you know there is no there is no Tesla today. It's, it's you gotta gotta remember that. Same with investing, by the way, mate. It's, it goes luck is far more important to your returns, my returns, everyone else's returns than most people want to admit because you don't want to admit want to be, it, right? Or you master the universe, big, but it's yeah. luck. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing with Musk too is that the reason he is the one, well, maybe not anymore, but he's up there, right? Yeah. Um, there, there, is there. that what he did was it's like. You know, if you're silly enough to play the pokey machines, you know, you see people put 10 bucks in and they win and they get double it, double it, yeah. Yeah. double it. Yeah. And he did that. Yeah. So he yeah. took all the PayPal winnings and just platted all into yeah. Tesla and then took any time he had extra spare equity or made any kind of sale, he rolled it back in. And it worked out very well for him. But again, that there is parallel universes where someone didn't double up five times in a row and, and you never heard them. It just... Yep. 
the fifth, yeah. the fifth yeah. toss turns out tails and you lose a lot. Absolutely. Yep. It's all gone. Yep. And it's all gone. And that, that's kind of what's so sort of uh, fascinating about yeah. the Musk story is just like, wow. Like, <laughs> And I guess you kind of had to be like that kind of guy yes, to, exactly. Exactly. to do that because the person who was more conservative and probably, let's face it, more rational uh, didn't propel themselves from obscurity to the richest person in the world right. <laughs> in a relatively short space of time. So, and it's it's the, the, the trouble with it's a while. It's a fascinating story. It's not practical because I can't repeat that. Yeah, exactly. Like, what what's the lesson? Like, go all in on a frontier technology yeah. that you happen to win, <laughs> yeah, right. and then do it yeah. five more times. Yeah, like, yeah, it's like yeah. uh, you know, that's not, and most of the time, that's just that's going to work out horribly. So, there's there's drawing the right lessons from this too. Exactly. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. My one from John who says, G'day, Scott and Ram. And it starts well. I love the podcast. Informative, entertaining, and then he says, an attempt at humour. <laughs> <laughs> what more could you want, he asks. Possibly actual humour, I suppose, John, but uh, I appreciate the, the the partial compliment and uh, the subtle dig. Thank you, mate. Love I, it. I was wondering what you think about the idea of letting first home buyers claim the interest portion of their mortgage repayments as a tax deduction for the first five years, possibly claiming a 50% deduction of the interest component for the next five years. That money would be paid directly to the loan provider to increase the homeowner's equity. To allow the government to pay for this, they could limit the amount that anyone could put in superannuation to $5 million. Any amount above this could still be invested without the tax perks of super. We talked a lot about the super bit, mate. So uh, funding it, we'll leave the funding bit aside. But uh, what do you reckon? Would that uh, improve the access to housing for young people in particular? I, I really get the sentiment, but I don't like the idea. I'm, I'm sorry to say. Tell me why. Um, it's like a lot of good intention policy. I mean, the, 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 the reality is, is you're going to level up. We've done this with first home owners grants and <laughs> yeah. you sort of level up everyone at the same time. So there, there is the argument this, well, yes, but this is just first home buyers. Yep. So it, so it isn't across the board, but it, it, it tends all else being equal just to push prices up a little bit anyway. So it kind of normalizes yeah. to, to some extent. Yep. The, 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 the problem is I've long said, is that all of these policy responses just are fiddling around the edges? Mm. There's a very, there's a very, you know, we just need more supply. <laughs> basically, if I can click my fingers and all of a sudden make that there were ten percent uh, vacant houses across the country, prices would collapse. There'd be all these houses that were empty, and then we'd all be able to. I just, it just would. I know that's oversimplifying it to, to some degree, but it, I'm trying to push in the general direction of what we need are more. Mm fundamental changes, not easy changes, changes that will take years to sort of to have an impact. Mm. But the the trouble with sort of giving people more money, which just sort of facilitates them to take on even more debt, I just, it just has, it's more, was it um, Steve Keen or someone used to call the first home owner grant <laughs> the vent? The yeah. vendor's grant. First time Because it was the yeah. vendor who yeah. got the money, right? Yeah. It was, it, 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 it you've, because you've it, got to Because just be- so to, to flush it out, because it meant more people could bid more at auction, therefore pushing up prices. So yeah. the first time buyer didn't have any ex- extra access to housing, the vendor just got a higher price for their house. Yeah. And and everyone you're competing with in, the, yeah. in your cohort is yeah. now also in the same correct, situation correct. as well. So I, I, lo- I do, I mean, I, I am all in on this as being a massive problem and needs to be addressed. Yeah. I just, I, 
the other the other trouble with a lot of these too is that the actual admin and regulation and stuff around it can be very costly and difficult and stuff as well. And just quite, yeah. just sim yep. big simple uh, solutions are, are better than very highly complicated technical yeah. ones that probably just fiddle around the edges. I think you're half right about supply, mate. I'm not convinced it's the whole story, and I think we've seen people's ability to pay, and I'm talking about yes, negative gearing, other things. For the same stock, whatever the supply is, yeah, there's there is a supply response, absolutely, but there's effectively a demand impl implication, which is just ability and willingness to pay based on certain circumstances, including, by the way, the bloody APRA buffer, which I've banged on about so many My times, but they're goodness. not not enough because yeah. I keep doing it, and no one else is talking about it, and I'm not going to no. do the whole, you know, I'm the only person here, but you've you've the same thing, of course. I'm not saying I'm the only person saying it, but it just it, for all the talk about low that we mentioned on Friday. This APRA debacle that, that you know. You Just could, explain could, it briefly for those that aren't across it. It's your fault, listeners. Andrew, blame Andrew. Uh, <laughs> effectively, when you take out a loan, the banking regulator, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, or APRA, says to the banks, you must use a minimum of the current interest rate plus 3%. So if you're currently charging 4% variable, you must qualify the buyer as if rates went up to 7%. The idea is, that the financial system is safer and the borrower is under less stress if you know they can pay back the loan if rates go up. And but, it's a 25-year mortgage, so rates will probably go up at some point. Exactly, that's right. And then down or whatever else. But yeah, they'll generally yep. go up. And so mm. you want to you just want to you just want to know that you know that you know. For the borrower's sake mm. and the bank's sake and the financial system's sake, it makes a whole lot mm. of sense. Mm. Now, that's used to be seven percent or two and a half percent more, whichever is less. Mm. Okay? Perfect idea. So if rates go mm -hmm. down really low, you still use 7%. If rates are at 9, you use 11.5. Okay, cool. That, mm -hmm. that kind of, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> with, with exquisitely awful timing, I'm resisting the urge to swear, exquisitely awful timing, APRA said, let's can the 7%. Let's just make it rates plus 2.5. Now, when rates are at 2%, you, you could get a loan at 2% in 2021. You could, APRA, would, APRA said to the banks, you must test the buyer, the borrower on 4.5%. As if that was as bad as things could get. You and I talked on Friday, Ram, about the 10-year high being the fact that it was really, really low for 10 years. Mm. Blind Freddy and his blind dog could tell you that 4.5% was a woefully inadequate buffer to assume or rate to assume for a borrower borrowing when rates were at effectively record lows. And yet, mm. APRA did absolutely nothing about it and encouraged people. In fact, the, they are reported to have been instructed by the treasurer. I say reported to, but I'll be really clear. I don't have any first-hand evidence of this. They were reported, the treasurer was reported to have instructed them to lower that buffer when rates were already stupidly low to get more people to buy houses. Now, is there any surprise subsequently <laughs> that prices have gone through the roof and the people are now in trouble because rates went up, funnily enough, above the level they were assessed at? It was just first-rate stupidity of APRA. No individual, talking about the regulatory body here, to allow that to happen. It's so big too. I'll do some maths for you. Let's say you've got $50,000 in disposable income after yep. all your costs. That's what the bank's going to look at. Can Scott service? Well, what can he service? Well, yep. he's got 50 yep. grand. Yep. So I'm going to test that uh, at 4.5%. So basically it means if he takes all of that 50 grand of discretionary income, mm -hmm. he can service a $1.1 million loan. So there oh, you go, $1.1 million loan. Had they been doing that, under the previous regime, they would have actually said, no, 7% is the minimum we can assess that on. Yes. So take 50,000, divide it by 0 0.07. That's how the maths works. 
And what it will tell you is, is that, well, Scott, this isn't principal, this is just interest repayments. <laughs> Scott can service a $714,000 loan. Right. In other words, 26 something percent less. That, that is how it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm being tested at four and a half, five. I, mean, I should have been tested at seven. What's the difference? Yeah, what's the difference? Yeah. Well, that's the maths and that's how it works out. Yeah. And that is, that, as I said on Friday, I mean, it's like, this is big trouble for, for people wanting to sell their price at a, their house mm -hmm. at higher prices because people who are bidding on the other side yeah. are being tested at money. Forget the buffer, just interest rates going up is going to mean that, that, that you're going to get those <laughs> right, movements. Exactly. Yeah. So, but anyway, to, to your point, yep. it was madness. It was reckless. It was stupid, and it, it enabled people to borrow far more than they should have been yeah. able to. Not because it's a nanny state, but just for like for the stability of our entire Corporate. financial system. Yep. Yep. You know that 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 should the have word been prudential done. Prudential is in the bloody title of the agency. It's in like, it's in on. the name. Yep, absolutely. And anyway, oh. I couldn't agree more. All right, we, back, we did have an original point somewhere. We did. Back to, we back wandered to the way off the path. So. Uh, yeah. I so so John, I think you're again as Ram said. I think you're absolutely right in terms of the the object I, I so i would look at the demand side of things i would i would frankly have i would stop future negative gearing i would grandfather it so i wouldn't take away people who borrowed assuming it i think that would be frankly probably unfair but probably economically reckless as well the damage it would cause to people would just not be worth doing so um, i think you, you grandfather what you've got not that i believe in no one ever being worse off but i think the size of the pain you think about the dollar value of some of these these impacts mm. you'd send some people to the wall i, I don't think we want to necessarily do that so grandfather it uh, I think supply is one part of it, mate. The other part is this is a very super prickly one and it is demand side and it's actually population. Now, that is not code for immigration. It is not code for xenophobia. It is not code for anything else. It's a really, really prickly topic to talk about, right? Because a whole lot of anti-immigration nutbags out there, if that's one of you listening, mm. I'm sorry to call you a nutbag, but you're a nutbag. Um, it, but if there are, you know, but there is a very reasonable question to ask given the, given the, given the circumstances. Given the geography of Australia and now most of our capital cities are all on the, on the coast and, and with limited ability to add land, think about Sydney, right? You've got rivers all over the joint. You've got the Blue Mountains to the west. Uh, you've got national parks to the north and effectively the south. There's only so much sprawl you can deal with and frankly, you want to deal with. There's only so much infrastructure that we can actually manage. The, the size of the sewer system, just a simple example, the amount of water available. Um, there are very real potential environmental and social limitations to the size of the population. Now, I don't care what's immigration or birth rate. So again, it's not mm. an immigration question. That's why I specifically say population, not immigration. Um, the I'm not just controlling how many people, how many kids get born either, by the way. But what I'm saying is the the popular the immigration is the is the uh, balancing number to whatever we think mm. the appropriate growth of the population is. But I think that's both, mate. I think you know, you, you end up with fewer em sorry more empty houses or fewer stresses on you know, uh, uh, higher vacancy rates or less mm. low vacancy rates uh, by by simply impacting or influencing the population. I think, frankly, uh, I'm a bit of a greenie anyway. Uh, I'm not sure we want to be tearing down more trees and, and tearing up more farmland. I'm not sure we want more urban sprawl. I'm also not sure we want more high-density housing in places unless people actually want to live in those high-density places. If you're living in a unit because you feel like you have no choice, you can't afford anything else, that's not a choice. You're not helping anybody by providing more high-density housing. You're just making up for the fact that people can't afford housing by giving them stuff they don't want. Uh, so there's a really, really, really complex conversation. Again, as we said on Friday, we're not having those conversations. There is nobody, there's mm -hmm. no serious policy thought and conversation about the confluence of house prices, population, infrastructure, environment. That, that's, that's, it's 101, right? If, if you owned yeah. Australia Inc., if this was a family company or frankly a family home, if you owned an estate of land and your, your family are going to live on, live on for the rest of the life, you'd say, well, 
where, where should we put the houses? How many houses can we put there? And what, what do we think is actually good quality of living? And, and how would we support that with infrastructure and sewage and water? And, you know, you, you would ask those questions. You'd have those conversations. Uh, but we're just not. So, again, that's a prickly one. But I think there's a few solutions. I don't mind the idea of letting first-time buyers have a bit of a leg up. I think it makes some sense. And as you say, Ram, it's only first-time buyers. So it's never helped. It's just never worked before. Every right, time exactly. we've done it, it's never worked before. If you could ensure right, it wasn't point. put into prices, I suppose you could make it work, right? If you, if you, if you structured it such that the bank couldn't, Use that as an excuse to lend them more money because they can afford to pay more in the first five years. Um, mm. Giving them giving them a, a, a free kick somewhere on the line probably makes some sense, but the problem is everything tends to get capitalized into prices. The jargon way to put it ends up being just a function of price for those reasons, and that's mm. that would be counterproductive if that happened. And you wouldn't want to make things worse by trying to make them better, which is what the first homeowners grant effectively did. Can I go back to first principles Please. again here? I think we always start with everyone needs to own a home. And I yep. go, well, I go back a step, actually. I know what, what people want is uh, security of shelter is mm. what they want, right? Like, and there's, 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 there's different models as to how you do that and there's different costs associated with it. But I just want somewhere that is clean, safe, affordable. Yep. That's what I want. For, to, to raise a family and to live my life or whatever I, whatever I want to do. That's actually totally. what I do. Yep. It's not about being encumbered, you know, in debt mm-hmm. servitude for 30 years yep. just because that's the only path forward that you can possibly do in retiring your 70s, having mm-hmm. finally just paid off the house that you've, you've had to throw your entire life's energy into. I, I, I feel as though there's a whole range of different policies that, that, mm-hmm. that could – address that. I just wanted to make that point. Again, That's I know I'm yep. sort of, pl- I'm, I'm speaking my own book here, but as well, but there are That's one in three of yeah, us Australians yeah. are, are, are renters. And I really don't, I've said, but why don't we even care about owning a house? I want to um, do other things with my capital. But that, anyway, I don't, I'm not putting that on anyone. That's just what I want to do. But yeah. what I do want, like everyone in the world wants, is safe, secure, stable housing. That's what I want. It just seems like whenever <laughs> this is discussed, it's always about how do we get young people to buy a house. It's like, no, what we want is that they can have safe, secure yeah. <laughs> structural, you know, uh, accommodation. That's what they want. That's what they Without want. Without tangenting that too point. far, mate, I'm actually going to make a, I'm going to slightly, slightly disagree with you only from a behavioral perspective. I think we should, that should be the primary goal for those who choose it. I also think one of the best things about mortgages for one of, for everything else is the fact that it's enforced saving. Yeah. So you're smart yeah. enough, engaged enough World, world wise enough, experienced enough to say, I can take Good that looking, money. funny. <sighs> I stopped there for a reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, you want to take that money and do something with it, right? Mm-hmm. What would worry me is the person who doesn't do that, who gets to 65 and goes, oh, bugger. Now what do I do? And I, there is something mm-hmm. just, and it's not, I, I don't want to make people do it, but I do think the, there's a social benefit overall for the, I call it naive, unaware, undisciplined, a whole lot of words. And I don't want, to, I don't want any of those to be value judgments. But you know, if, if, we, if, the average, if the average Australian 20-something-year-old bought a house, the average Australian 20-something-year-old would be better off when they get to be the average 65-something-year-old. You know, you're right that you should be able to choose the alternative and we should make sure renters have that protection and opportunity. And if you want to do it, we should allow people to do it. I, I just mm. think, I, I personally, and maybe I'm biased because I own a home, but I just I think there is something to that idea of the forced saving of a mortgage. A bit like superannuation, like just let me let me save you from yourself. I think mm. I don't want to get too nanny state, but I reckon those two things in particular, if we just made that the default and let people opt out or, or you know choose alternatives, 
it's probably better than the reverse. But not, which is not disagree with you at all. Just I, I do have a slight bias towards it because I think for most people, they will you know they don't know what they don't know till they know it, and at that point, it's too late. Yeah. Oh man, I've got so much to say, but I'm mindful of all the questions we've gotten. You've, <laughs> you've started me on let's, property. Well, yeah. uh, let's keep going on property then, because Graham says, "Hello, I've got a follow up question or two. The first one's for Andrew." I know you get roasted from time to time for considering a house a poorer investment than stocks, and you make an eloquent defense. When you consider your two outcomes, though, do you factor in, one, the fact you, your own home is capital gains tax-free, and two, leverage to buy a home is the cheapest leverage you can get because it's secured as a secured loan against property? Mm, Does that excellent. change or influence the thinking? Yeah, it's excellent. And the other thing that's missed there is the the security angle. So as I, I we yeah. we talked about this uh, maybe last year on extensively yeah. on a pod. So a very quick recap: I owned a house, <laughs> I bought a house, and we decided to sell it and invested in the market and and in a business. So you know, without getting into too much details, if you look at the percentage return on investment of the two paths that we're on, even accounting for property growing much stronger than I appreciated, <laughs> I've done I've done much better. In, in in shares on that percentage basis. Um, mm. But I still regret the decision. And and the decision and the reason I said that was for one, I didn't factor in that it being evicted every year and a half, you know, that on average kind of thing. So that that changed that changes not just the cost, but just the emotional toil and the stress and all of the lack of stability and, and stuff that I mentioned. And and the listener is right to point out a couple of things. The 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 leverage makes all the difference. When you're levered five to one, you, you know, and something goes up 5%, that's fantastic for your return. And you can't or shouldn't probably leave yourself to that degree into, into more volatile uh, asset classes. So, it's, so it's, ab- it's absolutely a factor. And the tax is also uh, a huge factor. I mean, I really started from a simple spreadsheet. Like, here's my capital. Here's one. And I did factor in being geared. And I did factor in a cert- some, what do I think is a reasonable return that I can get. And I didn't. I didn't say oh, I can get twenty percent a year because I'm the next one. But I just went with the market <laughs> average, you know. Yeah. Uh, even if it was all an ETF, and I just, I just played that forward. And the way it's hard to do this um, verbally, but, <laughs> but the way it is is that you kind crap. of when you're when when I did this uh, when I was in my thirties, and you push those lines forward, mm. it's just the 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 greater rate of growth, notwithstanding the tax benefits, notwithstanding the leverage element, actually lagged for a long time and then shot miles past it right so it's kind of like i think from the i think the maths is pretty solid given a long enough time frame and given you can assume a decent rate of return in the market versus what might be a, a an average for property but this is all academic this is all academic as i've said it 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 fails to uh, account for for uh, the utility of property and this is why i'm always careful because i think people misunderstand me when i say that that property yeah. is terrible. It's like, no, property's great. <laughs> property's one of the best asset classes in the world. I love property, mm-hmm. right? But and there's a, but but no asset, no matter how wonderful, is worth an infinite price, the old Charlie Munger saying. So it's it, it my beef has mainly been with one of valuation and price. Yeah. And I think it's very, very, very important to distinguish between buying a house and having an investment property. They're two different things. One, I get to live in, right? Like that's huge. And because of that, I'm not paying rent. I'm paying a mortgage, but I'm not paying rent. And I get all the benefits associated with that. So they're just two two very different things. 
But if I, I wrote this to the straw man members uh, last weekend, and I just used my current house as example without sort of doxing the owner and, and <laughs> trying to give away too much. But when we know what the house sold for last year and we know what rent we're paying. Mm. And I don't know how he structured it, yeah. but even if he paid for this thing in cash, he's getting a one and a half percent yield, right? Uh, if you factor in some insurance and costs <laughs> and the rest of it, it's probably 1.2%. Yeah. If he was 50% geared, you're in the negative. I think it's one and a half percent. I forget the exact numbers. And if you're leveraged with 20% deposit, most 20% deposit is about normal yeah, for, yeah. for yep. most people. Yep. Um, it's a negative yield. So let me, mm. let me flip this around and let's say without naming an asset class, I say, Scott, how would you like to lever yourself five to one into a negatively yielding asset. And I would imagine that you would just laugh in my face <laughs> because that sounds insane. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, and I'm sorry, I, I just think it's, I think it is insane. One day but you and I will talk about the temporal differences between a negative yield and actually adding money regularly to a share, share account, getting nothing for it, which I think is a, a worthwhile conversation. Because I think that's oh, a, yeah, true. I true. think that's a slightly I don't. No, I don't know. It's not jaundiced. It's not biased. Uh, I think there, there are, there are. You know, losing money, put, put, borrowing a whole lot of money and paying money every month and losing money, or, or you know, having a tax deduction is losing money every month. Why would you do that? You could say the same about putting money aside into a, you know, a share investing account. I, I, I'm losing money every month. I'm not getting anything back for it. I, I put in hundred dollars a year. I might get four percent back in dividends. I'm losing ninety six dollars a year. Why would I do that? I yeah, don't think they're. Yeah. I think they're entirely opposite things. And I want to. I don't want to tangent us at this point, but. Um, I, there is there's something to the cash flow differences. I think we can assign value on both sides. By the way, assign value yeah. to them, uh, pro and against. I, I think those value judgments they're often completely implicit and subconscious. I think there is something. I think there's, there's something worth teasing apart of that. Don't forget we do it on a, on a podcast because it relies on numbers and, and comparisons. Yeah. But there is something yeah. to it. I think. Well, I will preempt the. I'm sure a lot of people are screaming at the podcast <laughs> machine right now, which is the yeah. But you're forgetting the capital gain. And I'm not forgetting the capital gain. Obviously, that's why yep. you structure it that way. Correct. Because, but again, I did the maths in the in the in the update, and it's just again you have to put assumptions around it here. But these aren't out of the park wild. These are just our personal experience from our uh, anecdotal experience like, around the neighborhood. Rah rah. But but. I agree with you, by the way. I agree with you. I take, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, mad, mad. this is this is where it's crazy because people go, "Oh, yeah. so you, if there's a housing crash, you'll be wiped out." I was like, yes, you will because there's you'll <laughs> leave will, it and you will absolutely right. be wiped out. But my point is, let's so we need the long, long, long term average of property. Mm. If you go back hundred years or whatever, tends to more or less go up about three percent. I know that sounds really crazy low yeah. for the world in which people think that property doubles every seven years. <laughs> it doesn't longer term, um, but it, but, but, but. Let's say that is the case. Well, I'm losing about 3% a year under the current thing. So if property, not even saying flat lines, if it grows within historic norms, it's a wash, even with the capital gain. You know, I'm not making, I'm not making, or if I am making any money after tax, it's it's marginal. And it's not like oh, a $10,000 investment. It's a million dollar plus investment that's locked up for years and years and years. I've got to deal with all of these hassles of bloody tenants and agents and all the rest <laughs> of that kind of stuff. And I'm not making any money in real, and we haven't even talked about 7% inflation. If, 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 if it does go sideways, then you are just hemorrhaging out. It is, it is pure madness. And that's my, that is my beef with it. So just to answer the question and come back to it, if I found myself in the financial situation right now where I could buy a house and I could do that in a way, knowing that the prices are pretty silly, but that I could service it without much grief, I'd probably do it. 
yeah. to be honest with you. I probably wouldn't. Would I sell my portfolio and invest into Sydney uh, investment property market at those yields with that structure? I would rather chew my own arm <laughs> off than do that. And that's just me. That's, that's just clear. me. That's yeah. pretty clear. Um, I like it, mate. Let's move on to a question from JJ, who says, I'm curious how you think about companies that pursue a strategy of mergers and acquisitions. What signs do you look for to determine whether a new acquisition is adding value or not? <laughs> Have you seen successful roll-ups? And what characteristics do you see as important for success? Thanks for keeping us educated and entertained. That's from JJ. Oh, I love it. Do you want to go first? Yeah, all right. Um, yeah. I own one company that does a lot of roll-ups or has a lot of mergers, which is Corporate Travel Management. I mentioned that before. I own them for years. They've done really well. There's others that have gone really, really, really badly. Um, GA Education is one I've never owned, but has done a terrible, terrible job. <laughs> what a um, yeah. Lots in between. Uh, so the first thing I'll say is You've got to be careful of blanket rules in any direction, right? And and blanket rules are easy, and particularly if they're negative. We've talked before about how pessimism seems smart, right? It's so easy to say, well, always sell when directors are selling because they're getting out because this makes sense. And you kind of go, yeah, bastards, they're trying to screw us. Mm-hmm. Let's all get out. Or all roll-ups go bad. Look at your education. See that you know they're just doing this and doing that. And they're whatever. So it it can be really difficult. I would say be cautious. Probably even be very cautious because. It's incredibly difficult to to your, to your direct question, JJ. It's really hard to know what to look for when it comes to mergers and acquisitions because the, the numbers are always super muddy. They have to be by definition, particularly if there's multiple roll-ups at multiple periods of time, or multiple mergers, I should say. So let's say year one, the company runs itself and does its own thing. Halfway through year two, it buys another company. Now, that means the full year numbers have got half of the organic first half, half of the acquired business, but then that acquired business is only there for a year. So then in year three, you get the full value of that acquired business. So you start, your sales profits are going to grow just because you've had a full 12 months of it rather than six months in the previous financial year. Mm. So you're already looking like you've got this growth. Then during that year, you acquire something else. And so you've got the original organic business plus the second year of the acquired business plus the first year of the new acquired business and so on and so forth. So you're right to assume, I think, on the basis of your question, it's really, really, really hard. By the way, it's not massively different to a, to a retailer opening new stores either. You have to be careful of the same kind of thing. Uh, not not directly applicable, but you know you get the idea. If you build your footprint, year-on-year comparisons get much harder. Mm. So in that retail example, the first thing I would do is you want to look for reporting of organic growth versus acquired growth. So you want a management team to tell you how the base business is going and what proportion of that is. not. The proportion doesn't matter, but you want to see the raw numbers of the organic or the non-acquired businesses versus the acquisition as it goes. So that's that's the very, very, very first thing. Second thing, we're probably, it's probably should the other end actually, but second thing I'll say is you really, really want to trust management. So you want to know that management are on the level and are genuinely trying to create value. You can't know that for sure with anybody. But the more you can feel like you can trust management, you need to have a really good BS radar, but the more you feel like you can trust management, the better. Because they're going to try to do the right thing on your behalf and you hope they're getting it roughly right, and they are you know, people of integrity trying to do the right thing and trying to genuinely grow value. So candor and honesty is really, really important. You want to, you want to try and find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing is you want to look at how they're funding these things. So uh, G8 got itself into trouble because it tried to use shares to fund acquisitions, which worked as long as the share price went up. When the share price went backwards, the whole model just fell apart. 
The old so, earnings arbitrage. Yeah, the right. earnings multiple arbitrage. And it makes sense yeah. if you can if you can sell shares effectively issuing capital on a P of sixteen and buy a business on a P of six. You will you will actually you genuinely will make money. It's it's a really it's a just, very just smart to way flesh to that out. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm I'm taking equity that is being valued at say sixteen times my current yep. earnings. I'm buying one at eight times earnings. Those earnings are mine now. And then, so All I right. paid eight times for it, but now the market's valuing it at 16 times. We've got to double the uplift in market value. Yes, yes. So effectively, like that, private, $1, private public arbitrage. It, the, cool. the public market is worth $2. Yes. So, but, but, it, can, but it can work. So you know, better be mindful. So if they're using a lot of debt, be careful. Well, it always using- works for a while, doesn't it? That's, yes, that's the yes. danger of these is because they work spectacular. That was ABC Learning too, yes, right? Is it, it works spectacularly well because you're generally on a, a low base. Um, the maths just works out really favorably. So even if these are childcare centers where there's virtually no yeah. organic growth and like really hyper uh, harsh operating leverage if, you know, once you dro- drop below a certain occupancy levels, all yeah. these kinds of things. But it just that when you look at those earnings per share charts, they're just going up and to the right in a very aggressive way. They look fantastic. But as you say, each incremental one, well, you're getting less and less attractive centers mm-hmm. because I've bought all the good ones and, and I've already okay. got a big base of earnings. Right. That's yeah. okay though, by the way. I think this is that's the last thing I was going to say was exactly this point, mate, which is there's nothing wrong with that if you can do it selectively when the circumstances favor you. Yes. So Warren Buffett, and I'll get back to Buffett because this is a this is the perfect merger and acquisition example. Buffett talks about writing insurance. Most companies will write insurance every year because they did last year and the shareholders want them to double their earnings or grow their earnings every single year. So how do you do that? Well, you write more policies and you hope like buggery that the, you talk about racing the red coin on Friday, you hope like buggery, you can say, your premiums can stay ahead of the underwriting losses. Yeah. That, that's, that's the entire business model. Buffett mm-hmm. says, no, we're only going to write insurance if it's profitable to do so. So some years, the amount of insurance Berkshire writes, I own shares, is down 25, 50%. Why? Because they've got mm-hmm. just attractive pricing. Yeah. I th- if I write that policy, I want to charge you a thousand dollars. The market says the you only sell that policy for eight hundred bucks. They simply won't do the deal. They just won't yeah. write the policy, which is exactly what you should do. So yeah. you can use earnings arbitrage forever, and only do it when you get the right price and the right opportunity. The problem is, and this is where honestly, G eight issue was hubris, absolutely. But investors need to share, probably, maybe not more responsibility to management because at the end of the day, management are there to run the company well, but. Investors got carried away. Now we recommended. I, so when I say investor, I'll let me let me be personal. I got carried away. I did. I did back in the day. Yeah. I recommended this one to our share advisor members, and what I didn't allow for, I did the same thing with Coke. Actually, funnily enough, two very different businesses, but the same problem was, if you pay a high enough price, that assumes enough future growth. And G eight grew by acquisition really successfully for a while, but investors got carried away. What if they keep doing that forever? And to your point, Andrew, yeah, you know, when you've got one. Cent you buy a second one, you double your size. When you've got 100, you buy one more, your size increases by 1%. Mm. That's kind of the reverse issue of exponentiality. It's almost, you know, it's, it's mm. that reverse idea. But if you pay a price that says, look at the last five years, it's been great. If they keep this for the next five years, it'll be wonderful. Mm. Well, yeah, but if they don't keep doing it for the next five years because prices go up, which was one thing, they, other people got the same idea. So there's massive public market competitions that push the price of the acquisitions up and there weren't many to be made. Mm. All of a sudden, the growth engine shuts off. Yeah. And that's fi- that's completely fine. There's no real problem with that at all, as long as you pay a price that assumes that's going to happen. And mm. so the G8 problem was, yeah, it was partly mismanaged, but it was partly the investors just got carried away, including me, got carried away with how much growth there could be. When mm. the growth didn't come in, everyone was like, well, what am I paying X times earnings for this growth machine that isn't a growth machine anymore? So the last thing I would say, JJ, I'll throw it to you on a second round, but the last thing I would say is just be really careful 
about how much you pay based on how much market opportunity is left. And by definition, the bigger they get, uh, just be mindful that future growth, they're either going to have to acquire, you know, to, to, to double your size if you're 100 cents, you've got to buy another 100. It's very unlikely, right? So the rate yeah. of growth, if that growth is predominantly acquisition driven, should almost by definition fall over time. Almost like, you know, that curve that starts really steep and kind of ends up flattening out. That's exactly what you're thinking about with these sort of guys. So just make sure you know where the company is roughly on that curve and pay an appropriate price. Yeah, um, there's so much to say about acquisition. So the, the the stats on it are they might fluctuate a little bit, but I think the uh, generally is that for when you look at mergers and acquisitions, one third fail in the sense that they 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 detract from shareholder value. So I'm not saying the company fails, but it was just like it was a poor use of capital at the end of the day. One third don't do anything, so it's kind of a wash. You know, the 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 company's um, market value might be twice what it was, but you've got twice as many shares outstanding. So it's sort of like, mm, well, I've, I've kind of not benefited at all. Uh, and then you've got um, a, a third that work out. So mm. so you've you've only got a one in three chance that an acquisition is going to work. They they tend not to work. So that's that I think is always worth bearing in mind. I really want to double down on your point too. I was just like, well, why are you mm. doing it? If it's just core to the strategy and you are a pure sort of um, roll up, you've got to make sure that there's a huge opportunity out there for you to gobble that up before before that opportunity sort of runs out. Yeah, exactly. I'll give you a great example. Kelly Partners, right? They're, they run accounting firms. It's a small cap company. We've spoken to Brett Kelly, the founder, um, before. A really, really inspiring guy, actually. Um, but they've, they've, they've done a roll-up and they've done it exceptionally well. Hmm. Um, they have absolutely, genuinely created real shareholder value through doing it. And that's core to their, to their business. So you go in with this investment knowing that's the strategy. Hmm. And uh, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, according to Brett, it's like, well, there's actually lots of low-hanging fruit out there so we can continue to do this for a long, long time. And the other thing that I think is interesting with what they do is that it's not just we're buying a business because we get some earnings arbitrage or multiple arbitrage out of it, but it's we're actually to run, we're able to run those businesses more efficiently than what they were. So you'll always hear whenever mergers and acquisitions are happening, you always hear this term synergies, <laughs> which basically means let's say you and I merge together and all of a sudden it's like, well, we don't need two accounting teams. We don't need two versions of MailChimp to yes. run our CRM. We don't need, so there are a whole bunch of great synergies that can be taken on. So we can actually run a lot more efficiently. Mm. So you want to make sure that you've got something, everyone talks about it, whether or not they're realizable or not is another thing, but you want to make sure that there, there is some, that it looks, mm. the business looks better as a business unit than it does as a standalone because it can just run more effectively. Right. Um, it's just got to make, and if it, it's just got to make strategic sense at the end of the day, because you just keep making a few bad investments, things under uh, under uh, unwind very, very, very quickly. So, um, on terms of numbers with GA, yes, we we've been acquiring twenty centers each half, and we've continued to do that. But what are what are each of those centers like? This is really hard for, for an outside investor to tell. But if if you're just doing it for the sake of doing it at a point, it just really quickly falls over. And I just finally say one of the real challenges with it is uh, the cultural element. Mm -hmm. Merging different teams together just always causes drama. It used to be, you know, chief of your little area and all of a sudden half your team's gone and now you're reporting to someone else who likes to do things differently. And just like yeah. it, 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 it's surprising. Well, not maybe not. It's not surprising how 
meaningful that can be to things. And so the, the getting that cultural fit right, you have to usually go through periods of redundancies and it can be very, it's just, it's just very, very hard to do. So, so I'm, I'm naturally wary of uh, acquisitive companies, but there, but there are exceptions to the rule. Um, what was the other example? Hanson. Do you, do you know Hanson at all? They do bit, soft, yeah, yeah. software for utilities and stuff. Mm, and they had, silly. they had the longest history of, in, I mean, they were entirely acquisition driven. They bought very mature businesses um, and it all added and they just, they just were good at acquiring. The last few years has not gone so well, not, not terribly, but the growth has certainly disappeared. So the jury's out on whether that, that tends to be the case, but it does, it does sort of, go back to that initial point that it is a good strategy, but it is a strategy that gets progressively harder over time. And, and again, that's completely fine as long as you know as an investor what you yeah, even if yeah. even Hanson's growth slows because the, the thing stops working at some point, it doesn't make it a bad strategy or a bad business. It just means that, you know, this is a moderate growth business. They're doing their best to add some value by acquiring. As long as they're adding value, that's the right thing to do. Mm. If you pay a million times earnings because you've got this great, you know, long-term acquisition story, you're probably going to bring yourself undone. Um, yeah. A couple of quick, really quick things on corporate travel, mate, because it's a really good example of one that worked out really well. A few things. Mm, yes. They have been an employer of choice <laughs> for a very long time. So it's about culture. If you're, mm. if you're an acquirer and you own shares in the acquirer, you, wanna, you want that business to be somewhere other people want to join. Yeah. Because when you have those new acquisitions, are people going to enjoy being part of this business? Well, only if the culture is as good or better as the place they've come from. If, yeah. worse, if Google knocked on my thing. door tomorrow, I'm, I'm factoring in the foosball yeah. table and the beanbags <laughs> and the free breakfasts. You right, know? <laughs> right. Um, but even yeah, recognition and, and reward and that kind of stuff, like, they're really important. Yeah. Second thing for corporate travel is through most of the last 10 years or so, the growth, their organic growth has been about as good as their acquired growth. And that's important. I mentioned that at the very beginning. But you want to have that combination, right? You want a business that is doing better with the current business it's got. Ideally, not just growing for the sake of growing. You mentioned G8. Not much center level growth, right? Hanson, not much, you know, kind of uh, unit level growth. If it's all coming from acquisition, that's okay, but just know what you're getting. The benefit mm. of corporate travel was that combination of both. It's, I was, I always say always been, because not every year, it's not forever, but largely been about half and half acquired growth versus organic growth. And you want that organic growth mm. to continue. That's really, really important. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, that's- God, definitely- so obvious in hindsight, G8. I'm so embarrassed about that one. I. Yeah, childcare centers. You know, it's a, the the thematic was just oh, there's there's just in, there is there's massive yeah. in demand for all of this kind of stuff, but at the same time, it's highly regulated. Um, there's all kinds of staffing issues that go with that, and if you do an absolutely spectacular job at one point, you're just yeah. full, and then how do you grow? You can't. You can't grow at the at the center level of it, and then you say, well, what does what is what is a corporate group? Um, HQ bring to it. I mean, how much of the admin can I realistically outsource to some centralized authority? Some, yeah, yeah. not much. Not 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 that. Wow, this tips the profitability. Like this <laughs> tips the right. margins <laughs> from three percent yeah, to eight yeah. percent. It just doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah. And just it just for me again, it can work. But I love the acquisitions that just make strategic sense. It's like this moves us into a geography that would take us 10 years yeah. and 10 times as much money if we were going to do it ourselves. This allows us to, to uh, provide a new product offering that, we again, we would have to spend 10 years and a gazillion dollars in R&D and then try and build a brand up from the ground, or we can just buy these guys and run it really well. So there's, there's, there's 
yeah, if it's just like, this just makes us bigger and then we're just flat from there again. And I've had to issue new shares such that again, you do the mass, it's just all a wash at the end of the day. It's like, well, here's, here's a, I'll put my tinfoil hat on again very quickly. <laughs> it's going to work out. So this is, this is actually, we <laughs> talked before about what do you look at when you're in, investing? I, I spend more time than most, I think, looking at uh, executive um, uh, incentive schemes. Um, and, and you'll find that they're a dog's breakfast of how they're generally structured. And this is a whole topic in and of itself, so I'll keep it brief. But often you'll get management teams that are benchmarked against something like EBIT, operating profit, mm. or sometimes, God forbid, even revenue, right? Now, Scott Phillips, CEO of Phillips Enterprises, you will get a $10 million bonus if you grow operating profit <laughs> yeah, by 10%. Right. Yeah, now, yeah. What are you going to do? I know what I would do. Yeah. Um, I would borrow as much money as I can, raise whatever I can from the market, buy another business, and I've instantly achieved my target. Yeah. Now, I've probably diluted shareholders. I've probably put us on a very weak strategic footing. I've had all kinds of dramas that I've got to now deal with with this new business. But I'm, I met my goal, and I did it very, very, very easily. So, so you know, um, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. And I am always nervous when I see re uh, remuneration reports with incentive schemes structured around those kinds of numbers because that which gets measured is that which gets done. And if I'm being measured against this, I'm going to do everything I can to improve that. And I'm and when I should be perhaps focused on long-term per share earnings growth or something that makes far more sense, uh, anyway, you'd be surprised at how how dumb a lot of these incentive schemes are. Very dumb. Mate, that's a lovely place to finish. I'm not sure we got through as many questions as we wanted to. The good news about that is we have lots left for next time, which is awesome. As always, please follow us on all of the socials. Follow Andrew on Twitter at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. You get me on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P and The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. Follow me on Facebook. Come and follow the account, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. If you have a question for us, you can direct message us on any of those platforms or email us, info, I-N-F-O at fool.com.au. And one last plug, if you have finished listening to this one, you've got some more time on your hands, go and check out that Good Oil episode. Actually, check out a heap of them. There are so many good episodes. I'm going to do a quick callback. Michael Pascoe, I chatted to you about eight ah, weeks ago. Ah, big Pascoe fan. Yeah. Have you listened to that Great. episode yet? I haven't, mate. It's on mate, my playlist. Yourself, not because yeah. I'm any good, but because Pascoe is brilliant. Um, ignore yeah. me and listen to him. Uh, just, I am, I'm, I, like, I'm a, I'm a give myself a rap, but I just right place at the right time. Some of the people who agree to be interviewed, it's just really cool. Go back through some of those good oil episodes. Cool. Uh, if you want some extra listening, do yourself a favor. There's just some great guests who've got some really fascinating things to say. Police Bank CEO Matt Keane, New South Wales Treasurer, Pasco, uh, I spent Rebecca Huntley, we've spoken to, did the super podcast recently. I'm just the luckiest bloke in the world because I get to talk to really fascinating people, ask them questions yeah, that I lucky. want to know the That's answers cool. to and yeah. hope other people enjoy too. So if you want to listen to something, give it a go. If you hate it, then cool, unsubscribe and, uh, and all good. But yeah, if you're looking for something else to listen to, as you've made to say, I highly recommend the guests at least on The Good Oil. Until next week, until next Friday, you'll come back, won't you, mate? I wish I sure will. You couldn't stop me. In that case, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.